Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as mm-hmm. soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week. He says, thank you for taking my email. You know, I am really confused about what I need to do to get into good recovery. I hear lots of different things from different people, and of course, I got to tell you that I'd really like to do the least amount of work possible. Tell me, Carol, what can I do to get into good recovery? Well, the truth of the matter is you've got to do whatever it takes to develop and to maintain or to restore truth. And you've got to decide How does that work for you? You know my 10 recovery tools, or if you've been listening to the show, you should. 10 recovery tools will help you find some good recovery as long as you're willing to tell the truth. You know, I have had clients in the past who have um, stretched the truth, lied about the truth, Um, exaggerated their truth, and that's never going to get you what you want. It certainly will give you a couple of more, let's say, opportunities to act out, but are you wanting good recovery? I think you are. So you need support. And you need to be with a group of people absolutely positively know what you're doing and how you're feeling. And so that's why I say SA, Sexaholics Anonymous, SAA, Sex Addictions Anonymous, um, Seven Pillars, 
Christian group, um, Every Man's Battle, another Christian group, you name it, and definitely claim it. Because when you get involved in that group, you usually participate in meetings, and you find yourself a mentor or a sponsor, and you definitely finding ways to develop more fellowship. You know, when you go to these meetings, they almost invariably give you, they give you a list of men that you can call to get support or to share success or to just vent with. Now, it's important to do the work. So whatever program you decide to do, you want to increase your recovery by learning about your addiction and then doing whatever the work would tell you to do. And last but not least, for those five things, what you want to do is you want to participate in the group as if your life depended on it. You know, if you're in a 12-step group, you want to do the 12 steps. If you're in a seven pillars group, you want to identify what those seven pillars are, how you can strengthen them. There's lots of empathy courses. I know. I, I, I have a course online. Go to www.sexhelpwithcarolthecoach. You can take the course and go through the book and hear what I have to say, Help Her Heal the Empathy Workbook for Sex Addicts to Help Their Partners Heal. And you know better than anybody that if you are willing to do the work, then, then you're much more likely to stay in good recovery. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Staying in good recovery. That's what we look for. So, what do you need to stay in your best recovery? Well, I'll tell you, you need to see a specialist, somebody who knows about sex addiction. And they can actually help walk you through the process of the resources out there. There are some good resources and there are some bad resources. And I never dock a program or a person, a professional, but I actually will, I will encourage my clients to look at particular programs that I know work, where they won't be shamed. Their wives, if they have wives, are included. Resources is what it's about. And so, you know, what resources are available to you? This podcast is available to you, no doubt. What other podcasts are good? Because there are lots and lots of great podcasts. Um, Do you have a therapy group you can go to for sex addiction? A place you can go, you know, if you do a 12-step process or an every man's battle, You get some breakout time, but you really aren't supposed to cross-talk during the main 
formal um, process. Well, in a therapy group, you can talk whenever you really need to talk. So you got to see a CSAT and you got to go to a therapy group, and then I encourage you to pray, meditate, and journal. You don't have to do all three, but if you could do at least one of those, you're on the road to more success. And if you then read more about your addiction so that you understand that it's brain science that we're looking at, how do we extinguish an addiction? How do we turn it down? How do we manage it? And last but not least, obviously having those all important accountability tools. You know, do you have something on your phone, your laptop, your computer to keep you safe? Uh, if, if you have experienced cheating on your partner by going out to strip clubs or really anything, prostitutes, escort services, massage parlors, if you're doing any of that, a GPS is very helpful. And I'm a proponent of polygraphs because men make good decisions when they know that four months down the road, they're going to get a polygraph. Now, if you're single, you know, who do you send that, the polygraph information to? You know, who can be your accountability buddy or who can be a family member that knows your plight that is willing to receive that report? You make the decision. But when you work your resources, I promise you it works. And, you know, that's why today we're going to be talking to an expert, Lauren Rich, and she has worked with men and women in the military. And unfortunately, there are not many resources available to them that give them the support that they need. And and we all know that our service people are so special and we want them to have the most treatment and the most help and the most support and the most resources. So that's why we're going to be talking with Lauren today so that she can share with us what's going on in the military and what can we do as a community and as a culture to make help, support, and assistance more accessible to those great men and women that serve our country. So, Lauren, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Thank you, Carol. Thank you for the invitation. Well, yes, you know, when you were referencing to our listserv um, information about the military, I thought, I have never done a show uh, about the military. And so mm-hmm. I said, oh, I hope Lauren's available to help us to understand, you know, what do people in the military face when, when they're addicted to sex, sexual acting out, pornography, masturbation, prostitution, escorts, you name it. And so I want to ask you, uh, what do you think is the greatest sex addiction or sex-related issue in the military? Well, I think outside of the sexual trauma piece, you know, that, that's a different ballgame. Outside of the sexual trauma piece, I would definitely say it's a toss-up between pornography and, and maybe infidelity. Maybe infidelity is a 
a runner-up. Um, but pornography is one of those socially acceptable items, just like alcohol in military life. And part of that is because it is a um, predominantly male um, area. You know, you'll you'll see mixed numbers, but it's something like maybe five to eight percent. Um, of enlisteds or or uh, service members are women. Some numbers say higher, um, but overall we're talking you know 90% testosterone filled males um, that are most of the time alpha males. And so uh, naturally, I think it's understandable why, why pornography is so acceptable. Well, and and you know there's an old school thought that pornography is not a big deal. Mm-hmm. It is normal for male development. Um, now that women are really turning toward pornography and couples are really tor- tr- turning towards pornography, um, one of the things that you and I both know, Lauren, is that we as therapists are supposed to be porn neutral and not pathologize people that use porn unless it becomes compulsive and problematic, and then we help them with that addiction. So I want to ask you, what's your feelings about porn in general? So I guess it's kind of, I'll give you the attorney answer of it depends. (laughs) Um, It depends on the person. It depends on the client. It depends on their circumstances. And, you know, we we always, as good clinicians, try to not ever, force our beliefs or opinions on others. Um, I, my, my professional opinion is, is that if we can live without it, we need to live without it. Um, in military life, you know, so many of them are young and single that you're absolutely right. It, the, the viewpoint is that it's no big deal. And so it may be no big deal when you're 19 or 20 and you're single or you're dating around or whatever it may be and it doesn't interfere with a relationship yet. But then when you hit 24, 25, and you actually get married, it becomes a really big problem. And so, you know, thinking about that that process and how that really kind of changes over, I'm not, I'm not going to say the lifespan, I guess you could say the lifespan, but maybe the lifespan of an enlistment, you know, when you go in, you're 18 or 19, and you get out and you're 22 or 23, that's a big shift in, in you know, if nothing else, brain development. Yes, say a little bit more about that, how how it actually affects brain development. Well, and I'm I'm sure I don't you know, I don't get to listen to the show regularly, but I'm sure some of you your folks already know that we have an arousal template and that those things can be um distorted or changed simply by viewing pornography and and other things and so um you know we've at 18 or 19 when we're single and we're young and we're at Fort Bragg or Camp Pendleton or whatever it may be um it's no big deal quote unquote to have that arousal template changed but then we end up you know falling in love and having a quality relationship a few years later and then all of a sudden our arousal template is completely uh, not what it should be for for where we are engaging in a healthy relationship, um, and I th- I think to a certain extent um, men are using that to not just fill physical needs but maybe some loneliness needs. You know, it's it's hard being in the military. It can be lonely at times. Um, you know, I I married a combat veteran. And um, when you're gone on a Marine Expeditionary Unit for nine months at a time, that can be a really lonely place. 
Um, so I think a lot of times more so than not, and I don't know that they would ever admit it, but I think pornography fills the loneliness void for a lot of them. Well, you're right. Certainly in normal pornography use with addicts that I work with, the, t- the three actually top factors that feed into pornography use are, first and foremost, boredom, mm-hmm. secondly, anger, and then third, uh, loneliness. So I am not surprised that, you know, when you're in the military, you might feel very lonely in the midst of all those people. Now, I think it would be difficult for somebody to go, how could someone be lonely in a, a dorm, if you will, of 30 men? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, <laughs> oh, you know, gosh, it's so funny. You know, it's so funny when you think about how could you be bored and lonely with a bunch of 18-year-old, 19-year-old, you know, 30 of them. And, um, I mean, it is comical when you think about it to a certain extent because of what what they get into. But, you know, we all as human beings need that deeper attachment. And um, at that point, I think your brain is just so young that you maybe don't realize what's going on. And, And I suspect, as probably you have as well, is that they don't even realize it's out of loneliness. They don't even consciously know why they end up there. Yeah, and, you know, obviously you have a special affinity for the military, and you have made it your mission to understand what the issues are so you can help um, the men and women that serve. Now, do you – I know you're in, a, you're in a private practice or you're with a clinic, no, I have a private practice. I did um, I did nearly seven years at the government, partially FBI, and, and um, the majority at the Department of Veterans Affairs as a combat trauma therapist and um, have been in private practice for about a year and a half. But I still primarily see combat veterans. Probably about 95% of who I treat is, is a combat veteran. Okay, and so you see that loneliness is a major differentiating factor between men outside of the military and men in the military. Are there any other major differences that you see based on their culture, their community, and what they have to do every day? Well, I think I think the latter part of your question is, is most definitely the strongest area. You know, when we look at what their jobs are, um, and, you know, not simply the fact of being gone or away from family all the time, away from spouses and children, but when we look at the actual task, you know, that can be something that impacts our um, our system as a whole. And, and so I'll explain. If we have people who are um, in really high-risk situations all the time and they are either jumping out of planes, they're dealing with bombs, you know, whatever that may be, um, or, or even just in regular old combat, you know, the everyday infantrymen, so to speak, they are getting a whole lot more chemicals than the average Joe Schmo walking around, you know, small town America. Um, and the same goes with our, our first responders. You know, you had a first responder a couple episodes ago. I'm sorry, the clinician treated first responders a couple episodes ago. And um, she talked about the amount of exposure to trauma, and she's absolutely right. And and I've had first responders, you know, I, I see them as well, and a, a lot of first responders are veterans, um, but they have that chemical dump so much so all the time that 
when they leave that role or that job, they retire, they're medically discharged, we're then left chasing the chemical high. And so it's almost interchangeable for a lot of them, you know, when you think about reckless behavior, driving, um, excessive spending, gambling, shopping, whatever that may be, pornography is still in that realm. And so for some of them, it ends up being pornography simply, in my opinion, because they're chasing the high that they used to get when they would deal with bombs or jump out of an airplane. Well, that makes a lot of sense because this really is about brain science. And so it makes, uh, it's, it's right that they can interchange different highs, whether it be mm-hmm. sex, whether it be gambling, whether it be jumping out of an airplane. And mm-hmm. when, what we know is when, when you treat one of those addictions, another one, um, may either increase or develop and Mm -hmm. so oftentimes when I hear that men to to deal with their boredom and loneliness are gaming and they're loving it and they're doing it a lot I am saying oh hold on here because the truth of the matter is that lights up your brain in the exact same way as pornography or other types of sexual acting out cocaine and so, you know, we don't know what we don't know, and it's important to, to educate uh, our folks. And, and is there anything available to the military that, you know, would fall under the umbrella of psychoeducation, um, community workshops, that kind of thing, where men could hear about, men and women could hear about this stuff and not have to specifically attend a therapy session? Well, unfortunately, to, to the very best of my knowledge, none of those are available through the DOD or the VA. Um, those are all, you know, when you talk about resources, it would simply be the same resources, um, you know, that, that we have accessible to the general public that the military folks would use. And so that's why I encourage a lot of them um, to use anonymous um, phone groups or telehealth groups, you know, where you're not disclosing where you're at or who you are. Um, and, you know, when you think about when you think about the providers and, and who treats them, it really is on the provider to go and seek out extra education to help people through that process. And, and that was kind of how I landed in working with sex addiction. At the VA, I was the resident sex addiction and sex offender treatment provider because there wasn't anybody else. And occasionally I would, I would have colleagues um, who were on my PTSD combat trauma team and they would say, you know, I'm at section six with this guy, but he just reported a major pornography or um, sex addiction issue. You know, will you, will you see him instead? And so um, we would try to do what was best for the veteran and, and swap. Um, but it, it is such a disservice to them because so many of them battle that issue and it's, it's not on any questionnaires. It's not discussed. It's not talked about. I think as far as the VA is concerned and the DOD, uh, service members just don't have sex at all and they don't have sexual issues at all. <laughs> yeah, you know, that is, I guess that, you know, when there aren't resources for the problematic behaviors, it, it would assume or it would seem like, you know, maybe they don't need that kind of help when we know that, yes, indeed, they do. Now, we all know that 
veterans can oftentimes suffer from stress reactions, acute stress, um, PTSD, maybe even complex post-traumatic stress. And you said that you're a trauma specialist. So how do you treat veterans? Um, what do you do to help them with pornography use? Well, and, and again, the attorney answer of it depends. You know, every good clinician hopefully takes takes all of them on a case-by-case basis and, and adjusts the, the treatment planning and so to speak. Um, I use a lot of EMDR. Use it, um, gosh, I would say almost, da- if not daily, almost daily. Um, the, the DOD has endorsed three major trauma treatments, and those are prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, and EMDR. Um, the first two, you couldn't really do anything with sex addiction. Um, they make you choose an index trauma, quote-unquote, which is the worst trauma of all. Their assumption is that if you resolve the worst trauma of all, then all the others will fall in line. But that, in my professional opinion, has not been the case. And so that's why I lean toward EMDR, because if, if we're talking somebody who has multiple deployments or a police officer or first responder who has multiple traumas, we're asking people to pick the worst day of their life in some cases. And unfortunately, sometimes there are multiples of those. So EMDR alleviates them from having to make the choice. It also allows us to address multiple traumas in one treatment. And um, through time and working with people, I've discovered that when we can figure out our body sensations when we're about to use pornography or if we can identify what chemicals or what sensation we're chasing when we use pornography, we can actually get a lot farther. Um, And I'll I'll give you an example of that. I have one gentleman who I think he served 23 years, goodness, um, 23, maybe more. And um, I saw him originally for combat trauma. Well, no, let me take that back. A colleague saw him for um, combat trauma. Seven total deployments, which is a lot. And um, he was you know, just in the beginnings with her, and she she realized that he had a problematic sexual behavior, and so she referred him to me. And um, we discovered, and and I learned as a, you know, as a younger clinician, I think I'm always going to be a younger clinician no matter how old I get. Um, (laughs) I learned that, you know, sexual... Yeah, sexual behaviors are not always, you know, meeting the full diagnosis. And so this guy... After seven deployments and and retiring in leadership and and, um, working with bombs on a daily basis, when we figured out that his risky behavior within the PTSD criteria was using sex shops or going to um, places that offer those types of services, we started focusing on the physical sensation in EMDR. And so the the questions would be, um, how does your body feel when you pull into the parking lot, and and he would say, I feel like I'm about to jump out of the helicopter, and I hated jumping out of the helicopter. Um, and so, you know, he's not um, he's not overspending, he's not destroying his life, it's not interfering with his career, he's not lost relationships, um, although his marriage has most definitely suffered. When we look at the problematic sexual behavior or addiction, you know, criteria, he really wasn't meeting those. Um, And so that's why I say as a young clinician, you know, learning the difference between the full diagnosis and the behavior just being a part of a larger trauma diagnosis, that can really dictate how treatment moves for people. And so we focus a lot on um, 
separating the fact that it's not necessarily him that is wanting this. You know, he's a happily married man. He's got kids. He's stable. But that his brain is chasing the never-ending high. And when you are always living life on the edge and, and you know, not just on the edge but on the edge of death, where if you pull the wrong wire or if something goes wrong, it's completely over. Um, there, I can see how your brain would chase really risky things like going to sex shops. I think that that makes total sense. Yeah, I absolutely do too. And and so just a, I'm sure it's going to be a guesstimate, but when you think of the military, would you say that more men are single or more men are married? Oh, in like current service members, not veterans? Mm-hmm. Oh, I would say if you're a current service member, you're most likely unmarried. You're single man. Got it. And mm-hmm. so then obviously veterans would be when they stop um, doing active service, right, active duty. Mm-hmm. And would you say they're married, divorced, or single? Oh, gosh. Um I would say, boy, maybe 30 to 40% are remain married and the others are single, uh, single, never married or single divorced. And, you know, I mean, it's, gosh, it's, it's hard to be married and be in the military anyway. And then when you tack on things like being gone or having pornography issues or going to sex shops or things like that, oh my goodness, it becomes infinitely more challenging. And so are are there more sex shops around Fort Bragg, Fort, you, you know all the forts. Fort, you name it. Or yeah. they, <laughs> Fort, you name it. Um, I mean, yeah. is there more accessibility for those men? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Camp Pendleton, um, you know, uh, Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, um, Fort Bragg, you know, Leonard Wood in Missouri, you know, Polk in Louisiana, and, um, and I, you know, it's kind. It's almost intentional when you look at it based on. Well, it's not almost. I think it is intentional when you look on. Um, when you look at the demographic areas, and you look at the market for those things. You know, even the service members, even the guys, joke about um, and make comical videos about going to those sex shops that are right off base. Because if you get caught going to one of those, you're in big trouble. Um, and you know, they'll joke about the best strip clubs or, you know, the worst strip clubs or places you just, um, you you go and then um, you just bathe in hand sanitizer the entire time you're there. Or you go and it's a quote-unquote gentleman's club um, because it's so much classier, so to speak. And so it's an ongoing dialogue and joke with a lot of service members um, about those places that are right off base. So, so yes, they are much more prevalent than in small-town America. Okay, and, you know, we know that the three factors that increase sex addiction is anonymity, accessibility, and affordability. Mm-hmm. And so to have the accessibility increase increases the chances of developing a compulsion. Um, mm-hmm. What about the women, the women that are in the military? Do you find that they, too, have a propensity for sex addiction? 
I have not found that. that ironically, the female sex addicts that I see um, never served. And so I, I suspect they're like the standard pool of women that they end up in online chat rooms or things of that nature. Um, if I have had a military female who's had a sex addiction or problematic sexual behavior problem, they have never disclosed. Um, I'm trying to even think. Uh, I take that back. If we If we count chronic infidelity then yes, but if it were a different um, version, a different flavor, so to speak, I have not had any women endorse chronic pornography use as a problem or sex shops. Okay, and so you and I both know that women do have these issues. I wonder why they're not showing up because you obviously, as you're describing the situation, are a very non-judgmental, understanding, empathetic professional. I wonder why you're not getting the referrals. Do you get the referrals for sex and love addicts that are females? I do. I I think um, I think it may just go back to availability, so to speak. And so when you think about how you know that teeny tiny low single digit number where we have um, female veterans, that means the availability for referrals would go way, way down. Um, And then you top it off with, you know, feeling a certain amount of shame and it's completely unacceptable for women to have a pornography addiction. Um, So I think between just the availability of numbers within the population and then the extra shame that's on top of it, that's, that's, I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Because you've been been in practice a lot longer than I have. Have you ever had any female service members or, or female veterans endorse those problems? No, I haven't, although yeah. certainly I okay. see it in the general population. Um, mm-hmm. and, and invariably, when I work with female sex addicts, 90% of them have had some pretty horrendous trauma um, in mm-hmm. their childhood. So they suffer not only from sex addiction, but from post-traumatic stress and sometimes complex. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a segue into my next question, which is, how much trauma do you believe that these men have suffered both from their childhood before they served or once they got into to the, the services and experienced combat? So the question is, how much trauma have they experienced? Yeah, what do you see um, based on the people that you see as trauma a factor in their sex addiction? Oh, I I definitely think so. Um, E.C. Hurley is a really well-known EMDR um, provider and facilitator, and, and he has an office, a private practice, that, that serves a large portion of service members right outside of Fort Campbell, Kentucky, if anybody is in that area. And while sexual issues are not his specialty, trauma and, you know, military are his specialty. And um, I remember visiting with him, and, and um, he told me one time that they were working, I think, on just a smaller study maybe in the area about the ACE score, you know, the adverse childhood experience. And so they were giving everybody who walked in the clinic the ACE screening and um, every single one of them had a higher number than the average or uh, general population did. And so we're already off the bat endorsing trauma from childhood and then we end up in the military and uh, it may not be combat trauma, it may be military sexual trauma or some type of other trauma um, that's sustained. And so I would, you know, for, for my people, they're obviously coming to me because they've been through trauma. Um, 
I I know there are lots of them who do not have those do not have those events occur. You know, it's a job like any other, quote unquote. Um, but for for my folks, it's the vast majority, if not all of them, have been through some sort of either combination childhood and military or military trauma. That is uh, that is so ironic that you would mention um, Hurley because I have a friend who whose husband is in Fort Campbell and. She is dealing with her own trauma from her childhood, and she mm-hmm. talked to me about this man. And he, I was actually using her as a guinea pig when I was learning EMDR and mm-hmm. had a girl down at the lake, and I'm like, does anybody want to try EMDR? And she's like, oh, yeah, I love EMDR. I'll try it with you. <laughs> and she just went on and on. This man is like an EMDR hero, isn't he? He oh he is excellent he is excellent as he should be you know he had a career in the military uh, he has been practicing EMDR for at least two maybe three decades he's a he's a Vietnam uh, veteran and so when you when you think about the, some of the great clinicians that we can you know look to or read about or um, you know can offer advice to to clinicians or to clients E C Hurley is definitely one of them and um, it it just goes to show how you know, what a strong correlation tra- trauma can have to problematic sexual behaviors. And the trauma may not necessarily even be sexual in nature. Well, you know, I was going to ask you, how can sexual issues be trauma-related as well as how can trauma – now, you know I know the answer – how can <laughs> trauma um, create sexual addiction? How do you mm-hmm. see them both manifesting? Well, I think that would go back to a lot of it is is chasing the chemicals like we talked about. Um, I think a lot of it is on the subconscious level. If trauma creates a belief system that we are worthless or not wanted or that we're failures um, and, and that seeps into our marriage and, and other facets of life, naturally we would find things to self soothe. And on on the opposite end of that, when we're talking about chasing those chemicals, you know, I've had first responders, police officers tell me um, who were who are also service members, because I think it's upwards of 60 to 65 percent of people in law enforcement are also prior service members. Um, You know, I will go masturbate before I go on shift because, well, this may be the last shift I ever work. Or I go masturbate before shift because it helps me get amped up and I I, um, need those chemicals to go do my job, so to speak. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So so I – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's a combination between chasing chemicals and, you know, their belief system as a whole. But um, I wholeheartedly agree that, you know, boredom, <laughs> boredom and anger and loneliness are things that men battle all the time, and they just don't even want to articulate that to anybody, especially in, in the world of service, because that – that is a sign of weakness when it comes to the loneliness piece. Anger is very acceptable. Um, boredom, I think they just don't even realize it until we start talking about, you know, what time in your day is empty? When do you utilize it the most? Is it opportunity-based? You know, those kinds of questions. So I think you're absolutely right in those major three areas too. Well, I think you've been really insightful here and helped us to understand 
what they're dealing with. And, you know, when you say boredom, I'm assuming you don't just mean on the base. You mean when they are uh, stationed uh, in other countries and they, you know, are really uh, having a lot of downtime. You know, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't think they would, but they do. Is that what you're referencing? Well, oh, but yes, both of them, both of them, um, and especially, you know, when they get out, we're, we're lacking purpose and fulfillment. I'm sure a lot of people in your audience can at least relate to that. You know, you can have a job, but just because you have a job doesn't mean that it's purpose-filled, um, doesn't mean that it really gets you excited or it's something to live for, so to speak. And so the boredom isn't just after we're a veteran. Sometimes you're right, the, vor- the boredom is while we're on deployment, and sometimes – um, deployments are a hurry-up-and-wait process. And so you may be sitting around 85% of the time waiting for the other 15% of excitement. And that's something that service members, you know, they have to fill their time. And so you may get a terabyte of music, and it may be filled with pornography, and you don't even know it. So sometimes it's completely unintentional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good point, good point. Okay, well, is there anything else that you can think of that we need to share with our audience to help them uh, create more compassion, understanding, and uh, awareness when it comes to what our military is facing right now? Well, I, you know, for for the time that we have today, I I think we've covered it all. Um, You know, when you think about it, if you're a spouse of a military member, um, you know, it's one of those things where, we almost have to work to not take that personal because the the use of pornography is not it's not a personal one in regarding the spouse a lot of times in military life it's a result of being apart it's a result of loneliness boredom it's a result of chasing chemicals and so it's not just one simple issue. Um, But if the spouse can also find support either online, you know, anonymously or um, in whatever community they may live in, then I would definitely say they need to go seek those resources out as well. Well, and you know, Lauren, my uh, experience, because I do treat military across state lines from a coaching perspective and, you know, give them Mm -hmm. the basic tools that they need to look for, that would be obviously talking to them about medication and talking to them about 12-step groups and and the stigma and uh, the brotherhood and all the things that go with any kind of sexual addiction support or treatment. And my experience is if you can't get them in with a trauma specialist, they almost don't feel like they deserve, um, how do I want to say this, Men in general, when they come and see me, they really appreciate the fact that they can talk about something that brings them guilt and shame and confusion. But with my military clients, you've got to hook them quickly because if you don't, they don't stick with you. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you've had that same experience or if you think that might be because you see them face-to-face and virtually, right? Yes. Yes, I do. And, you know, they're they're a tough crowd to win over. They're very distrusting as a whole, um, which is why I think it's a benefit to be married to one of them and to have, you know, prior service experience at the VA um, helps a lot. But I, I always joke with them, and I, I always tell them, 
you know, and, and this really started at the VA, uh, but through the choice program is how most of them come to see me. And so I jokingly say, I'll give you the first six sessions for free. And if you're displeased, we'll find you someone else. And and I tell them, you know, it's going to take you a little while to trust me and to get there. Um, but some of them, you know, are, are so funny. Um, I had, you know, two of them last week just, just crack me up. One walked in. He said, I want to thank you for ruining my sex life. And I said, well, what's that about? And he said, you know, before I would jump into bed with women, I would see them scantily dressed or whatever. And um, he said, now I just tell myself that it's low-hanging fruit, and, and I don't need to go there, and it's not a relationship of quality. It's going to be empty and lonely, and that I am better off being autonomous and independent. And so, you know, I, so I, I naturally responded, and I said, so are you telling me you have standards? <laughs> he, he said, yes. Yeah. yeah. He said, I, so he said, so darn you for, for creating standards. And um, by the end of the week, the next veteran had come in, and we had been working on building up to actually having sex again, you know, a full full intercourse with his wife. And he had he had struggled with some ED issues and started taking a medication for it. But, you know, a lot of the ED issues are trauma-related, again, because of our belief system. And so um, his homework was to simply, you know, go home and get the deed done. And he sent me an email that said something like, not to be unprofessional, but I was successful and highly successful in completing my homework this week. Looking forward to next session. <laughs> Uh-huh. Good sense of humor and, and so like, oh yeah. Yes, yes. And so winning winning those folks over, you know, winning those military guys over early on, um, it's totally doable. You know, you just have to be have to be flexible with them and, and um like you would with every other client and understand culture and things like that. But you know, they're they're a funny bunch and um you know, they don't I don't I don't know that they've met a whole lot of providers who can openly talk about combat trauma and sex sex behaviors in the same session. So I think it's equally as hard for them to not only trust the provider, but to find the provider who's knowledgeable about both. Well, I get that and you know, obviously you're married to somebody in the military, you're a trauma specialist and you had this vested interest in the military and sex addiction. So I just so appreciate your service. Um, and I, I know that people can get a hold of you by going to your website, Lauren, that's L-A-U-R-E-N, rich, R-I-C-H, dot net. Um, any other way that they can contact you? Sure. Um, so since I'm a solo practitioner, and you know, a lot like a lot of us are, um, telephone is probably easiest. I, I do do email, but it may take me, you know, a week or so to get back to people. Um, but if they have specific questions, more than happy to answer. And um, I try to post those questions, you know, confidentially. Um, I don't ever reveal who the person is. I guess I should say anonymously. Um, but on Facebook, mm-hmm. I post videos, or on YouTube, I post videos to questions. And so they can feel free to email me. Um, LinkedIn is always there. But if they go to the website, people can actually take what we call, you know, a brief FUBAR assessment and see where you are. And and it's the basic questions of trauma. Are you sleeping? Are you having an alcohol issue? Do you feel numb and detached from others? Um, And and actually a couple questions in the FUBAR assessment, it's pretty brief, but a couple of them are sexual related. You know, do you find fulfillment in your sex life? And um, do you have other issues 
you know, within your sex life that, that you want to stop other problematic sexual behaviors. And so they can kind of get a little bit of a feel where they are, you know, because it, it takes a while for people to be ready to come in and to figure out um, how to get help. And so I try to make those things accessible to where they can just dip their toe in the water by going to my website, and then they can take their time because not everybody's ready on day one when they click on the website. Sometimes it takes them a long, long time. And so I, I'm more than happy to be patient, and um, I have people that email me all across the country. Um, I even have people that email from other countries on occasion if they're stationed uh, overseas. And so I'm um, always happy to answer questions, messages, whatever that may be. Uh, well, thank you again. Her website is laurenrich.net and continues success with some very special people. You make it a great week. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. Take good care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And so obviously this is a woman who has made it her mission to help people who aren't necessarily comfortable talking about this issue with just the average person. And i got to tell you, there's a lot of counselors that aren't comfortable talking about it either. I'm Carol Jurgensen Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach. And um, as I always say, Fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. We'll see you next week with more sex help with Carol the Coach. Make it a good one.